You may be seated. Thank you, worship team. Good morning, High Point. Uh, my name is Femi. Uh, I am one of the elders here, and I'll be reading the scripture for today. Uh, the passage for today is not what's in the bulletin. It's Ephesians chapter 5. We'll be reading verses 15 through 33. It's the end of the chapter. It can be found on page 1780 in your pew Bible. Ephesians chapter 5, starting from verse 15. Be very careful, then, how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, Love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, No one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. This is the word of the Lord written for his people. Thanks, Thanks, Femi. I know that for some of you, not just wives and husbands, but also for like single people and divorcees um, and maybe very young people, this is like your worst nightmare. We're going to talk about Ephesians 5 again. And I, um, I kind of apologize for that. Um, the, the reason why—you're um, yeah, welcome— uh, the reason why I wanted for us to spend two weeks on this as a church is because um, it's one thing to have like a pastoral challenge, kind of what Mike did last week. I thought he did a good job. You probably did a good job listening. Um, but one of the, this is one of the areas where as a church, um, High Point has, has been and is a what's sometimes called a complementarian church. We believe that this means what it basically says, that there isn't, there is no sufficiently clever way to realize that this actually says the opposite of what it says. And that, um, and that not only is it completely out of step with the assumptions of the culture in which we live in that is unbelieving, but that in some institutions that call themselves churches but probably aren't, and then in a number of churches that are definitely churches and are trying very much to honor Jesus in how they do ministry and understand the scriptures, they have, have 
produced means by which and do themselves publish and teach that this doesn't say what it seems to say. And um, some of these leaders are dear friends of mine, people who I believe love Jesus with all their heart, or at least with a good bit of their heart. Or as it says in Nehemiah, feared God more than most. You know, like that, like me. You know, they're more like me. And um, I love them very much, but I believe that that, that that teaching is unfaithful and confusing to Christ's sheep. And I believe that it is my responsibility as a pastor to explicitly say I believe it's wrong and why, so that you would not be spiritually confused in your relationships with each other and in our relationships with each other. And so um, I won't be naming any names or anything, but I, uh, I am going to talk about this a little bit more, especially if we can find a clicker. There we go. Okay, good. Um, so one of the things to think about is um, I intentionally started in verse 15 instead of in verse 21 or 22. Usually when this passage is preached on, um, it starts either in verse 21 or 22. The reason why I started in verse 18 is because the command, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, is a subcommand to one that comes before it. And this, it's a subcommand to the command, be filled with the Spirit. It says, don't be filled with wine, which leads to debauchery, but instead be filled with the Spirit. And then there's essentially three very concrete ways we're told to be filled with the Spirit. I mean, have you ever been to church and like they've read that passage, don't be drunk in wine, but be filled with the Spirit. And then they'd be like, and then, they're, then they tell you how to be filled with the Spirit. Or you're like, how do you be filled with the Spirit? And then they say, and it has nothing to do with the verses that follow it. Right? The passage tells you how to be filled with the Spirit. It says, first, worship God with your mouth and with your heart. Sing spiritual songs to each other and speak and give Praise to God with thankfulness in your heart. That is, give your body's posture, your voice, your heart, your mind with each other all together. Praise, love, and thankfulness towards God. And that, that is the work of worship that leads your heart and tunes it towards God and stirs up and within you spiritual devotion. That's the first thing. The second thing is, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. That the only way the people of God can thrive and flourish together is that if in their interpersonal relationships, they are rightly relating to and feeding off of and submitting to and helping to each other in a way that leads to human flourishing. And third, we are going to have to take our stand against evil by putting on the full armor of God. Right, which is the second half of chapter 6. So in a sense, the rest of the book of Ephesians is explaining very specifically how Christians are supposed to be filled with the Spirit. By giving ourselves to worship and devotion together. By submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. By having thriving relationships with each other in the right sort of way. And to put on the full armor of God in faith so that we can take our stand against the evil one and all things related to that in our perseverance. Does that make sense? That's what it means to be filled with the Spirit. Now, being filled with the Spirit can mean things in addition to that, but it means at least that. Okay? Um, you can see that here. This is the controlling sentence, and then speak to one another, submit to one another. So, so therefore, submitting to one another is a big part of being filled with the Spirit. This, it's not like, well, we should worship God, and we should put on the full armor of God, and we should, like, love Jesus, and that's what it means to be filled with the Spirit. No. No, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, whatever that means, is a fundamental part of what it means to live filled with the Spirit, okay? So, I will do three things today. The first is, I want to look at the big theological picture for this and what we're supposed to understand about God and all of us, no matter what your marital status is. 
Secondly, I want to look close, more closely at the syntax and grammar of this passage, specifically to say there are a bunch of things this passage cannot mean. Okay? The author has ruled them out. The scriptures explicitly put in things that make certain interpretations not possible. And we need to know what they are. Right? And then lastly, I want to substantially apply this in only about 15 ways. So in 140 minutes, we'll be ready to go. Okay? So— the first is, is that the big picture theologically is Christ and his body, the church, is the big picture. Okay, not just of this passage, but the whole book of Ephesians. The, the whole book of Ephesians, the main metaphor of the entire book is that the church, that is all the people who believe in Jesus, in all time, space, countries, languages, races, ethnicities, ages, anything, everybody who believes in Jesus is this one body of Christ, and Christ is its living head. Okay, that's the metaphor that starts in chapter— the end of chapter 1, chapter 2, and flows all the way through the book. It is the main theme of the entire book of Ephesians. The book of Ephesians talks about us being the body of Christ more than any other book of the Bible, at least page for page. And it is a huge focus. It's the main and great truth we're all supposed to learn to know. Okay, now, the way I want to go through that bit is I want to actually tell you— because some of you are going to want to read more about this sometimes especially women. And so the, the best single volume I know of on what the Bible teaches about men and women is this book called God's Good Design by Claire Smith. There are a few reasons I like it. One, most women who read about this want to read from a woman, writer, which I understand. It's not— there's no reason why that should necessarily be the case, but it's, it feels very soothing. Okay, so she's a woman. She also has a doctorate in theology. She has very strong academic capacity, but she writes like an Australian, which she is, which is like straight at it. Okay? And so it isn't full of any kind of academic jargon. It's a very straightforward Bible study. And um, she speaks at, like, women's conferences and stuff like that. She's just not the feely type of woman speaker, you know? And um, one of the things I really like about this book is um, she doesn't act as though interpreting these passages of the Bible to say the opposite of what they actually say is, like— it, that it's close, or like, oh, you know, it could really be that, but I guess I really think it's this other thing. She takes the position, she's like, no, these passages say what they obviously say. Like, you, like, if you read this, nobody would read this out loud in any language it's been translated into without some kind of agenda and be like, it, well, it probably doesn't mean wives should submit to their husbands. And so she takes a very straightforward approach, which I think is important. Because there's a means by which you can start being like, oh, there's a lot to that. Well, maybe there's—well, I don't want to be too dogmatic. When something is straightforward and you behave as though arguments against it are perfectly reasonable too much, it's, it, it ceases to be charity at some point, and you begin to give over ground of clarity that the, that Christ, the people who belong to Christ deserve. And I think Claire Smith does a good job with that. So um, if you're a normal American and you think reading more than 50 pages is like a fate worse than death, then this book, Justice, um, Jesus, Justice, and Generals by Kathy Keller is really good but it doesn't deal with a lot of the questions that'll, that'll inevitably come up. Okay, so um, the way Claire Smith summarizes Ephesians 5 in, I think it's chapter 5 of her book, is she says there's, there's five, there's three really key theological themes. The first is Christ is the head of his church. Everything assumed and taught in Ephesians 5 says that Christ, Jesus the Christ, is the head of his church. And head means the one who is over in authority, in absolute sovereign rule over his people. Secondly, the church is therefore subject to Christ. That's just a fact. 
We, it doesn't mean we're good at it. It doesn't even mean we always do it. It just means because Jesus is the living head, the church is subject to him. That is, we should be in a relationship of submission to our ruling head. And third, he loves the church as his own body. Right? So when Paul is talking about how husbands should behave, he says, you should be like Christ who— and so he's no longer talking about the husband. He's talking particularly about the, about the Christ. Who gave himself up for her so that she'd be washed and cleansed, so that there would be no spot, blemish, or wrinkle, so that she would sparkle as a perfect bride, so that when she became everything she could possibly be, he would give her to himself so that they would enjoy each other forever, okay? That's not the picture of the insecure husband who needs to make the woman less in a subservient role so that he can feel strong, so that she never becomes all that she can be, so that he can feel comfortable. That's not the picture. The picture is a completely emotionally stable and secure husband who the more his wife is, the better that is for him. The more she can become, the more she flowers, the more she flourishes, the more skills and abilities and freedoms and loves fill her heart, the more there is for him. And so his goal is always that she be everything that she could possibly be, because it doesn't threaten him at all. And the more she is, the more he gives to himself. So everything he does is to maximize what can be in the woman. So that when she comes and stands before him as his bride, she's everything she could ever be, and she can enjoy him maximally, and he can enjoy her maximally. And so that everything he does as that ruling head is for her good. Because everything that's for her, her good is ultimately for his good too. So everything he does is for the mutual gain of both the bride and the groom. Do you understand? And that that is how Jesus, the living head, functions in his entire church. Okay, so now it's going to get worse for you who are single because the sermon is going to apply to you, which is even worse than it not applying to you, which is the main, the main application for every believer in Ephesians 5 is, is Christ your living head? Do you behave and believe and act and structure your life and thought and emotions and how you live that Christ is your living head and you are submissive to him. I mean, that's the—that's it. Like, if we get that right, everything else kind of just flows. That's not on. We're done. You understand? Because if you think Jesus is your special friend, and that's basically it, and then he's like, you should submit to your husband, you're going to be like, I don't submit to my husband. Right? It's, you have to start with the— Jesus is this living head. He is absolute sovereign. Therefore, you and I as the church, his bride, are subject to him, as the body is subject to the head. Like, I'm not even thinking about my hands flipping around. I'm just kind of doing it even subconsciously in my head, and my hands are like flying around like an Italian. You know what I'm saying? It's just, they just do it. And I, I realize for some of you, as you get older, the body doesn't do exactly what you tell it to do. But for the most part, it just does it. That's the metaphor. Do you realize that's the metaphor? The metaphor is just like you just move your leg without thinking about it. Just like you breathe without having to pay much attention. And your lungs don't go, I don't feel like breathing. I'm not breathing. I don't like the way you told me to breathe. You should have said please. Like it doesn't do that. It just does it. Right? And that is the relationship of us as the bride and body of Christ to Christ, the greater husband and cosmic head. Does that make sense? That is the most important truth out of this passage. 
So we could stop the sermon right here. We're not, we're not gonna. But we, we could stop it right there because that is the main issue. Okay, now. Secondly, reading the text close and tactically. So there are a number of things people have said this passage means that it does not mean, okay? The truth of this passage is far more challenging than you probably think it is. No matter how much you think you believe in this passage, basically every out, there is no exit on this passage. Every out you think there might be in this text is not an out. Every single one is a welded down manhole cover, okay? And it, it's important to recognize that because in almost every place in this passage, we're looking to either reverse its meaning naturally, because like we're all post-feminist people, right? We're looking to like flip the meaning of the passage entirely, say it's culturally relative or something, or at least decrease the like proportional weight of the passage. Be like, well, it says that, but it's really not that strong. It's as strong as it could possibly be. Okay, so let's look at a couple of these. One is, some people have, have argued that because verse 21 says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, that that is meant to be a separate but controlling idea to the rest of the statements about the household code. That is, husbands to wives, children to parents, slaves or servants to household masters. And so what we should get from this as Christians is, yes, there is some structure to humanity, right? That's, that is going to remain. But the fundamental commandment that precedes all of it and therefore controls all of it is that we should all be submitting to one another, right? And if we would all submit to one another rightly, we wouldn't need any of this hierarchy. We might have it so that people don't get angry at us, right? But we should essentially be an egalitarian, unstructured, like, group of people, right? That's just not what it means, right? It's— Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ is a grammatical heading to something that's further explained throughout the rest of the verses. One of the ways that you know that is there is the verb submit yourself to your husband isn't even in the original text. It's supplied from the previous verse. So verse 21 says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then the next line just says, wives to husbands as to Christ. It doesn't need the verb because you're supposed to understand, like in terms of its context, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ is the general statement. Now I'm going to explain exactly what I mean by that general statement. It doesn't control and undermine the rest of the statements. It's the general statement the rest is an explanation of. So then it says, what do I mean by submit to one another? Well, the first thing I mean by submit to one another is wives submit to your husbands. That's very important. Submit as to Christ. Also, there's four relationships in this text. Three of them are obviously not interchangeable, right? Christ doesn't submit to the church. Parents are not supposed to submit to their children. And slaves don't submit to masters. Now you might, might be like, well, maybe, maybe masters should submit to slaves. Well, yes, but when we get to that in two weeks, you'll see that's not Paul's logic. The interrelational dignity got, that Paul is inserting into that relationship to change it and reform it isn't the same thing as erasing it, which is what this verse would have to mean if it, if it meant that. And that's why it doesn't mean that. Okay? It doesn't mean mutual submission. Now, here's the thing. But that's also 50% right. If you read the rest of the Bible about how we're all supposed to love each other, aren't we still going to have mutual submission even in relationships of right hierarchy? And the answer is, of course. All the time. Probably almost half of my decisions—I'm the boss on staff. Probably almost half my decisions I submit to my subordinates on the staff team. 
Nicole or Aaron or Mike's ideas are better than mine, or they're in charge of the thing and I want them to do it their way, and I can't put my armor on them, so to speak, right? And so I let them do it their way, or maybe they just need a break, and so I pull back and I do what I think that they need. But I'm not abdicating my authority. I'm using my authority to submit to them. It doesn't change the hierarchical relationship, and the hierarchical relationship is the context of flourishing in which I submit to them, even though structurally they're supposed to submit to me. So the passage does not teach mutual submission, though love, even within hierarchical relationships, often produces mutual submission. Right? You shouldn't confuse those two. The second thing is the parallel between Christ and the church and husbands and wives in this passage is comprehensive for its purpose. Okay? Now, there are ways in which husbands are not Christ. Okay? Can we stipulate that? There are ways in which husbands are not Christ, and there are ways in which wives are not the church. Okay? And however, for the purpose of this parallel in relationship to the, in relationship to the question of submission and love, the parallel is absolute in this text. The main way you can tell that is by actually paying attention to the conjunctions, which the NIV has dramatically softened in its translation. So in the English translation you're reading, in order to make the text less offensive, wherever possible, the NIV has softened the conjunctions. But the conjunctions are all as, just as, just also as, and because. And in every case, it basically says, so for example, it says, wives to husbands as to Christ. Now, in the NIV you're reading, it says, as you do to Christ. So you could take that to mean, well, as much as I submit to Christ, I submit to my husband. But I don't submit that much to Christ, so maybe I don't— No, that's not what it means. Right? Or it says later in the NIV, it says, um, submit. It says, and just as, oh, now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands and everything. Okay, it doesn't say, the text, the the Greek text doesn't say, now as the church submits to Christ, because that could mean either the church does submit, or it could mean to the quality by which the church normally does submit to Jesus, which is of course terrible. Wives should submit to their husbands. That's not what it says. What it technically says in the Greek is, now as the church is subject to Christ, so wives to their husbands. It doesn't even do the verb again because it's so absolutely related. You don't even need to repeat the verb, right? In every case, the conjunctions and the verbal uses and the grammar of all the whole passage allows absolutely no out. There is a 100% parallelism between the authority of Christ and the authority of the husband and the and the submissive responsiveness of the church and the submissive responsiveness of the wife in this passage. In relationship to authority and submission, the parallel is absolutely complete. Okay? Now listen. That may be the hardest thing you've heard so far in the sermon, or maybe even at church your whole life. I, that's just the thing. I can't lie to you. Right? Okay. Third, the comprehensive parallel is also a, a mystery, a, like a mystery of union. Okay? So, the, the thing that the apostle is making the point to between men and women is the same thing. That is, Christ is the head of his body, the church, okay? The lesson he's taking from it for men and women is a different lesson, okay? So the lesson he brings forward to women, he says, listen, ladies, Christ is the head. That is, he's in authority over the church, the, his body, right? And if you are going to live out within this mystery the role of the church, then you have to submit to your husband like the church is supposed to submit to Christ. 
Otherwise, you aren't going to parallel the thing. It doesn't work, and it's not right, okay? Now, when he turns to the husband, he's, he takes a different lesson, right? So when it comes to the head and the body, right, if the French Revolution has taught us anything, it's taught us that in order for the head to lead the body, it has to be attached, right? Wait for it. Okay, so, right, like, if— if the head is, if, if physically the head is leading the body, it's attached to the body, right? And so if you have a head that's attached to the body, then what do you have? You don't have a head and a body. What do you have? You just have a body, right? Like we don't go, well, there's a head and the body. It's like, no, it's their whole body. You wouldn't be like, oh, there's a body. We can remove the head and it's still normal. Like it's, like the, it's the whole body. And so Paul's like, now think about this for a second. If the body is the head and the whole body, there is no distinction between the head and the body in terms of the life that the thing has. And so, as a husband, you can't imagine any means by which you could do anything to, the, to your wife or that which is attached to your wife and not be doing it to yourself. You are one, right? And so, therefore, you need to treat her like you would treat yourself if you treated yourself properly, right? And then he says— the magnitude of the way you should understand this is related to something that is an enormously great mystery. Right? And Paul is actually not given to using the word mystery a lot, but this is a real mystery because there's like, there's really three mysteries, right? Which makes it a mysterion megas, a mega mystery, right? Like there's, first there's the, the biggest mystery, which is that Christ is the head of the church. Okay? Like, look at us. I mean, just look around. Look at all these normal, strange people sitting in this room, okay? Like, it's not—we're not impressive. Do you understand? We're not impressive. We're just these, like, normal people. We're sitting in a room. Like, we managed to get out of bed just because it's daylight savings time. Like, it's like we're not—we're just—right? And what Jesus has done and what he's said to us is that he has given us— look, it says in, in Ephesians 1-3, every spiritual blessing in Christ— he has absolutely transformed our existence and made us into spiritual creatures that we could never have imagined. He has redeemed us to be his own. He has drawn us in through justification to actually participate in the divine nature, to be filled with his own spirit, to be bound together like a body is tied together by sinews and joints into one body together, to be an eternal bride that he is making perfectly spotless who will enjoy him and be enjoyed by him forever. That that is what you are becoming and have become if you have come to belong to Jesus. Don't pretend you understand that. You don't understand that. You don't feel that. You don't know that. It's a, it's a mystery. It's like this—it's this thing you've been told that, like, you believe is true. You kind of understand a little bit of its implications, sort of. You sort of at least know what you think it maybe tells you to do. But, like, you realize that if somebody was like, well, what does that mean? You—you'd be like, well, I would just say the same thing again. Like, I don't know. Like, it's a—it's a big mystery, right? And then, in okay, so that's one mystery. And then in addition to that, right— it says, Scripture says from the very beginning, from the very first couple, when God brought Adam and Eve together, it says that, the, that when they came together and became one couple, it says that the two became one. Okay? It's easy to be like, well, that means that 
when they come together sexually, they'll produce offspring, and so they become one. Or that they, they have sex, they become one. Like, there's no, you know, there's no clothes, right? Or something like that. But that's not what it really means. Like, it could have easily said that, but that's not what it says in the Bible, right? And so that's why Paul quotes Genesis 2. He's like, listen, don't you remember in the Bible where it says, um, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh, right? And you're like, okay, wait. But think about this for a second. Okay, if you look at your— Okay, if you have your Bible, look at it quickly in verse 28. Verse 28 says, Thus, or in the same way, husbands— The word ought, translated ought. So this is like, it's not literal enough in favor of the wives. That word ought is the word owe. Like you owe, legally owe a million dollars. It's not like, well, you probably should love your wife. No, it's you actually owe your wife this. They owe love to their own wives as they owe love to their own bodies, right? Because some guys are like, they don't take care of themselves. They're like, well, I can take care of my wife as well as I take care of myself. You know, like that's, that's not what it's saying. It's saying that just like you owe your wife to love and care for her the way you owe yourself as a divine image bearer as you should treat yourself. Does that make sense? And, but it says, it says bodies, as their own bodies. Okay, that's the generic Greek word soma, okay? So it's just a generic word for bodies. Then he says, he who loves his wife loves himself. After all, or for, no one ever hated their own body. Okay, now that's the same word in English, but in Greek it's a different word. It's the word sarks, okay? Now, the reason why that's interesting is because usually in the New Testament, when Paul uses the word sarks, it means the sinful nature. It's like the negative flesh. It's like the fleshliness. It's like the selfish, I want to do what I want, glandular, instinctual, don't tell me what to do. I'll act out of fear and anger and whatever I want to do, right? That's what the word flesh usually means. In this context, it just means literally your flesh, like your body, right? He says, no one ever hated their own flesh, like your physical body, right? But they feed and care for their body. That's soma again. Somaros again, right? Their own body, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. Same generic word, somaros. So he's only used sarks once, right? Then he says, for this reason, he says, because it says, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one what? One flesh, right? But you see the point there? What does flesh mean there? It doesn't mean sinful nature. Right? Because this, this is a holy idea. It's a, it's a great idea. Right? It, they become one flesh. That means body, basically. Right? Flesh in that context means body. So you see, what the apostle is saying is he's used the word sarks up above because he's going to use the word sarks down here because what he wants you to pick up on is, is that we are the body of Christ. And when the husband and wife come together and become one flesh, it, it doesn't mean they become one sinful nature. It means they become one body. They become one. Just like Christ is one with his church, the husband and wife become one. And you can't don't pretend you know what that means. Right? You don't know what that means. It might mean procreation, partly. It might mean sex, partly. But that's not all of what it means. It means more than that. It's a, this sort of like holistic, sort of mystical, like logism. It's like, it's, it's, we don't even really know. It just means something really profound. It means they become one. And so like, we know what that, that means. Something like they ought to adore each other. They ought to really know each other deeply. They ought to deeply appreciate each other. They should be there for each other. When one hurts, the other should hurt. When one rejoices, the other should rejoice. Like there should be the interweaving of the circuitry of their loves and devotions and should, should be one. But like, who knows what that means? No one, right? It's a mystery. And that's the second mystery. And then there's a third mystery. And the third mystery is that the one 
models the other. That's the third mystery. That somehow the two becoming one body and Christ is one body with his church, these two point to each other. That Christ being the head over his body tells us what marriage is supposed to be. And marriage is supposed to act in a certain kind of oneness to show us what Christ and his church is supposed to mean. And that interrelationship is not supposed to have any daylight between it. The parallel is supposed to be absolute. And that, don't pretend you know what that means. Right? It's mystery upon mystery upon mystery. It is a big mystery. And here's why that's so important. Because the size and weight and breadth of those three mysteries interworking are supposed to be, is given to us as a size of motivation for the husband to actually love his wife in the context. That's what it's given to us as. And relatively speaking to the woman as well. It's closer to what he says to the man, but it can be applied to the woman as well. That when you think about this, the thing that he actually offers to increase the dramatic nature of your motivation— to love and submit, and to have this relationship of complementary union of head and helper, right, is the mystery upon mystery upon mystery. And it's supposed to help. And it will if the sort of the meaning and the imagery and the beauty of each of these mysteries not only each make it into your heart, but build upon each other into a larger crescendo. The last one of these is, the last verse says, um, he gets to all this mystery stuff, but I'm talking about Christ in the church, and he's like, okay, wait, I need to end with a really concrete sentence, like, but every husband must love his wife, and every wife must respect her husband, okay? Great, okay. Except, the problem with that is, is some people have read that and basically said, all this talk about submission and headship and love and blah, 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 can really just be summarized in wives should love their husbands, and husbands should, or Wives, husbands should love their wives, and wives should just respect their husbands, okay? The problem with respect is that respect is a very relative word, right? Like, have you ever seen, like, a crazy rebellious teenager? You'd be like, you know, you should respect their parents. And they're like, I do respect my parents. And they're like, well, they don't know, okay? You know, like, you're, like who, who's being respected and who's not being respected can be, like, a really wide margin, you know? And the word that's translated respect is, is the word phobos, where we get the word fear, right? Phobia or fear. And it's, it's the word group that's commonly used about how we should think about God, that we should fear God, right? And you've probably heard preachers say, well, you're not literally supposed to be afraid of God. You're just supposed to, like, revere God and his absolute authority such that you wouldn't transgress it because you so respect and revere him. And so you could think of it as respect. Well, yeah, that works as long as respect is connected to that whole explanation and a little bit more. Otherwise, it's easy to just say, well, I respect my husband. And the husband—this is what I hear at the counseling office often. The husband's like, not enough for me to know, and never enough for you actually to submit to me in anything. You know? And then the argument begins. You know, that's—like, that's the way it goes. And compare this to another example. In, in 1 Peter 3, 7, which you should read 1 Peter 3, before you have this discussion in your small group, because it's basically Peter teaching the same thing in different words, okay? He says in 1 Peter 3, this, this controversial sentence that deserves a sermon, but will not get one right now. Husbands, live with your wives—I'm translating it literally, okay? This isn't what your NIV says. 
Live with, your li- live with your wives according to understanding as the weaker vessel. The NIV says weaker partner. I don't like weaker partner as a translation because it could mean either she's a full partner who's weaker, or it could mean that as a partner, she's weaker in the partnership. And I don't like that ambiguity. What it says is weaker vessel, right? That is, th- that is the sort of thing the woman is, is in some ways more breakable but is also differently useful, right? So one example of this is like women tend to be on the whole more sensitive than men, right? Which means if you treat them harshly, you can hurt them more easily than men. But what it also means is they're aware of things less sensitive creatures are not aware of, right? It's it's sort of like having a sensor on a tank, right? Like you don't be like, well, let's just put a tank on a tank. No, you need a radar in the tank, right? You you need both kinds of things. But you see, the problem is if, if women are— weaker or more fragile in certain kinds of ways because of certain roles that they tend to play, then you need to treat them like that, right? And so it says, don't be harsh with them. But then it says this, instead, as a woman, ascribe to her greater, let's say, respect as a co-heir of the grace of life so that your prayers won't be hindered, right? Now, the word respect— is not a translation of phobos. It's a translation of timeon, which is in the word group of honor, right? Timothy means honored one, right? So when Peter says, you need to respect your wife, he uses a different word. Now, if we were in a New Testament seminar, the question you would ask is this. Well, Nick, is there a Greek word that just means just respect and like doesn't have some other connotation? And the answer is no, there isn't. But— Think about it this way for a second. The, what the word honor means, basically, is—and what it specifically means in that context is, could you beat up on your wife? Could you harshly make her do what you want her to do as a man? Depends on some things. Depends on how hard you are. Depends on how weak she is. Depends on some things. But generally speaking, men are hard when they want to get women to do things, and women are— conniving and naggy and stuff like that when they want men to do things. But he's like, but you can't do that because you have to live according to who she really is as the weaker vessel, according to understanding. That understanding starting with at least this. Be better if it included all of her, your understanding of her as feminine within this identity as the weaker vessel. But let's start with at least this. That she is a co-heir of the grace of life. Okay? So whatever you think you can do to her— you need to stop and remember that in an absolutely equal way to you, as an equal inheritor, she's a co-heir of the grace of life. And therefore, she deserves timeon, honor. That is, respect ascribed on the basis of her dignity. Could she force it? No, she can't force it. Probably not. Doesn't matter. She deserves it. You owe it to her. She has that dignity, and that dignity must be honored. It doesn't matter who has the power, right? Now, conversely, in Ephesians 5, the word phobos means something different. It means reverence in relationship to the authority that the person has, so that the way you honor or respect them keeps in mind and demonstrates your respect of their authority. That's the way you're supposed to fear God. You're supposed to demonstrate respect for his authority in the way you demonstrate honor and respect for him. And that's the word that Paul uses, right? 
I think that actually works out pretty decently, right? That the apostles are saying to us, wives, as you relate to your husbands, the way you should show them respect is with a kind of reference, reverence that recognizes sort of implicitly in how you behave a role that you believe that they have, that you are respecting, that you are encouraging them to live out, and that you want them to flourish in, and that they know it in how you act, right? Like any woman knows that like, you don't have to say, I'm not going to, I'm not going to follow you. There's a thousand ways to tell your boss, your professor, your husband, anybody who you have a relationship with where they're supposed to be in charge, that you don't care for their being in charge. You're not really going to follow them. You're going to make things harder for them no matter what they do, and you're not playing ball. That's not what phobos means in this context, to respect your husband. It means that you want him to, to act in the authority they have. You are going to support him. You realize that he's called to do that, that it is his responsibility, and so on. And, and, and conversely, husbands recognizing the position that their wife is in has to first and foremost recognize that it is their job without harshness in real understanding of what they are as a woman to first and foremost recognize that they deserve your recognition of their absolute dignity as a co-heir of the grace of life. And if you don't— your prayers will be hindered, either because in your conscience you'll know you're an idiot, or B, God will simply not listen to you, because he's not going to use his authority to help you when you're not using your authority to cause your house and your wife to flourish. Right? If those things work together, there is a beautiful complementary relationship between the differences of men and women to provide for protection and productivity and ultimate flourishing. And when they don't, None of it works, okay? All right, you guys ready to go through some applications really fast? Awesome. Hopefully there's already been some. Okay, first, this is for everyone. More and more embrace Jesus as your living head. More and more embrace Jesus as your living head. The card that you got as like the, the card to think about and pray about this week, that's what basically what it says. Regardless of your marital situation, do you or do you not Worship and follow Jesus completely as your living head, your full authority. Are you in subjection to him? And do you believe that he wants desperately to bring out everything that's good in you? That he loves you in that way? That you would be without spot or wrinkle? That he would present the perfect version of you to himself, right? Second is, living in profound harmony takes maturity and strength. Listen, this is just a bunch of rules to use to hurt each other until you actually grow spiritually. Right? I mean, let me think about it in the most secular sense you can right now. Let's say your marriage is really bad. You're married, your marriage is really bad, and you go to a marriage counselor, okay? You go two or three times, and then what does the marriage counselor say to you? Right? Something like this, okay? If you haven't been in marriage counseling, this is what happens. They say something like this. You know, there are some dynamics in your marriage that are kind of unhelpful, and I know that you're struggling with. But, and we can work on those in sessions together. But in order for us to make real progress, what? I would like to meet with, right, either one or both of you individually, right? That's, I mean, that probably happens in, I don't know, 60, 70% of marriage counseling situations. And why do they do that, right? Are the counselors just trying to get more money out of you? Well, I don't know their hearts. But what they're doing professionally, right, what they're doing professionally is they recognize that the, you're the problem, right? Like, and then, like, there, there, there are no truly, fully innocent problems between people, right? They're always coming from somewhere, 
right? And so if you take out the secular counselor, you just put in the counselor who is the Holy Spirit. Because remember, this whole thing's about being filled with the Spirit, right? And you say, God, what, what, what gives here, right? The answer is always going to be something like this. You got to grow. You're going to have to grow. You have to grow spiritually. You're going to have to grow stronger. You're going to have to grow in healing. You're going to have to let go of that stuff from your parents and how you were abused and hurt. And you're going to have to deal with it. And you're going to have to reopen your heart again in the places that it's closed. And you're going to have to decide you're going to be the kind of person that does the right thing and follows the truth instead of being worried about what's going to happen to you. And you're going to have to deal with some of your anxieties and root yourself more deeply in Christ. And like, you're going to have to grow. And then if your spouse were to pray— they would end up hearing the same thing, okay? If, if your spouse prays and they come back with a revelation for you, it's probably not the Holy Spirit they were listening to, okay? You're gonna, you're gonna realize, because when you op really open your heart to God for the truth, the Holy Spirit doesn't even have to literally speak to you. Your own more honest intuitions will start to tell you that, like, you're the problem. Or like, or maybe more specifically, the problems with you are the only problems you can really control and do something about. So let's do that. Right? So, if, for, so, that, so that's applicable to anybody, because in any of your relationships, and all relationships have some kind of hierarchy, what's really necessary is the godliness of both people increasing, right? Three is every robust system has, is susceptible corrupt, to corruption, and rejecting the system for anarchy or tyranny is not the answer. Here's what I mean by that. Anytime you get two human beings together and you're trying to accomplish anything— some hierarchy tends to emerge. Somebody tends to take the lead, and somebody tends to support them as that helper. Whenever you try to hold zero hierarchy and say, well, we're just going to be egalitarian about this. We're all just going to be equal partners, and right, we're just going to do it, right? Basically, what you usually get is a lack of productivity, and everybody quits. Okay, if you disagree with me about that, please go out and find any profitable business that functions that way. Just one in the entire world. Just go out into the world and find one business anywhere that truly functions egalitarianly, and you'll— you're going to be a long while at it. You're not going to find very many. You might find one somewhere. The people are just that talented. Okay, but it's not the way it works, right? Like last week I was hunting in Colorado and I was with Steve and I was like, like the minute I got there, like I lead in almost every area of my life. I got there and I became the helper. I was like, okay, how do I help? How do I do this? I did all the stuff to try to make his leadership more successful because if he's successful, I'm successful because we're doing this together, right? And he'd ask me what I wanted to do. And I would tell him, I would say, now make the decision. I'll follow you. Because you can't— you don't want to waste your life second-guessing everything, right? So every relationship becomes like that. Every organization that exists, that does any—accomplishes anything has hierarchy in it. Has people who say, okay, you lead. You're going to have the authority to lead. I'm going to help. I'm going to follow. And we're going we're to accomplish something together. We're going to protect something together. We're going to cause flourishing together. The problem is, is the minute there's any hierarchy at all, anybody has any authority and anybody's helping, there is the possibility and opportunity for corruption. Just like that. The minute there's any hierarchy, there's opportunity for corruption. And that brings in fear because it's going to happen. Power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely, right? And so you can see how husbands and wives would be like, look, Nick, this is a hierarchy. Hierarchies are inherently prone to corruption, and I am not doing it. It's going to be corrupt. And the answer is, yes, it is going to be corrupt. You're absolutely right. It's going to be corrupt. And here's the problem. Every organization in all of our lives that accomplishes anything is corrupt. This church is corrupt. Do you know that? Do you know this church is corrupt? It's corrupt. You're in it. Like, you're here. I mean, like, you think that, that this is uncorrupt? Like, we've got all kinds of corruption in all of us affecting this church negatively, right? We're not a pure church. Like, we've got all kinds of corruptions. But we're accomplishing something together. 
right? Same thing with our school district and our, and our state house and like every, or every business, every organization, everything that exists is full of corruption. Like I was at a thing this week, this is more of a joke and we shouldn't take time for it, but I think you'll appreciate it. <laughs> I was at a meeting this week in a focus group for what we should be looking for in the next superintendent of Madison Metropolitan School District, okay? Like my voice, like my voice matters, right? But anyway, I, we went through the thing, people talked about this stuff, we got to the end of the meeting, I said, listen, I'm trying to the consultants. I said, listen, here's what you need to tell the people you talk to, okay? And here's who you need to find. Madison is going to abuse the heck out of you. We are going to treat you like you are a racist piece of garbage. No matter what you're going to do, we're going to make sure it doesn't work. Like there is no salary possible worth being the superintendent of our school district. This is impossible. Like, you need to find somebody who has a martyr complex. They want to die. Like, you need to find somebody who's like, they're so old, they don't have to impress anybody anymore. Like, you need to find a very small cross-section of humanity because this city is going to treat them like garbage. Right? Because we don't understand how difficult responsibility is, how everybody's asking for mutually exclusive things. That, like, but listen— what we forget is thousands of kids learn to read and write every year. You know, like, like, that's the way the world is. Every organization is full of this. And so what has to happen is you and I have to be the kind of people that are in all these organizations and are bringing renewal. The only way for any organization to not increase in its corruption and to have a continually renewing spirit that keeps it reasonably uncorrupted so that it can produce flourishing is if you and I become the kind of people that know how to get power to not corrupt us. And it starts with recognizing morally and in terms of your identity with integrity, what is your responsibility and who has given you this trust? And you have to do that over and over again. It's a spiritual discipline you have to keep doing, right? When I first came to High Point Church, Eldon Harms gave me an alpaca shepherd's crook. It's like a hundred dollar piece of wood. He's like, I want you to have this because I want you to know that no matter what happens to this church, no matter how big it grows, no matter where you get to pray at the state house, or you talk with business people and people act like you're important, I want you to realize you're never anything but a shepherd. All you are ever doing is protecting and providing Jesus' sheep and trying to find lost ones. That's it. Everything else does nothing but serve that. Right? I have it hanging in my office. I see it. I think about it. Right? I've, I've had people tell me, they're like, like I do all kinds of stuff like intentionally to shrink the size of this church. And people are like, Nick, you're like the only pastor I know who like seems to like be obsessed with shrinking. Don't you want your church to grow? I'm like, no! I do not want my church to grow. Listen, you think like if people come to your church and you'll be the successful pastor. Every person that comes is more responsibility. They are this divine image-bearing sheep of Christ who he loves desperately, who he wants to be protected for and flourished and loved. And like, it's like getting another child. It's like a hundred spiritual pounds laid on my back the minute anybody walks through that door. And yes, I want everyone that God wants to give us, but for God's sakes, no. Like, I just— I can think of a—I have a very, very funny semi-crass joke in my head that I'm not going to say, okay? Um, keep moving. Okay, yeah, uh, where are we? Am I going backwards? Okay. All right, four is fear is our greatest obstacle in living these things out well, right? Um, Peter says to women mainly, he says, listen, the great saints of women of old, they put their hope in God, they did what was right, and they didn't give way to fear in these things. The same is true for men. 
Women and men are afraid of something different. Men are afraid of, like, taking on the responsibility of a family and being, like, like used up in the work of that and not being supported and left by their wife and their children being taken away. Like, there's lots of reasons why men are really afraid to marry and start families, right? And there are women. There's lots of reasons women would be afraid to marry and start families and live together in oneness. Listen, it's mutual. There's a lot of shared fear. And the question is, what are you going to do about that? There's a mystery that if you choose a suitable person and marry them, you could become one. And you could mirror the ultimate mystery of the oneness between Christ the head and his living church. And you could do that. And it is terrifying. And the terror doesn't end after the wedding. It gets all the time. And then you have children, and then that's terrifying. It's just very terrifying. And so you have to decide if you're going to put your hope in God, do what is right, and not give way to fear, right? Um, one of the things to think about that is, is that— um, Oh, this is a different section, sorry. So in this passage, it's important to recognize that neither the taking of leadership or the giving of submission are conditional requirements. What that means is, if a wife says, yeah, it says submit to your husband, but my husband's kind of a dork. He's never good at leading, and I really shouldn't follow him. The problem is, is that they're not conditional on each other. Similarly, a husband to love his wife, it's not conditional upon whether or not she submits to you. It's not conditional. The two are not related, okay? And what they are is, the command for a wife to submit to her husband is given to the wife. And the command for a husband to love his wife is given to the husband. And then what's even scarier is there's absolutely no biblical recourse for a man or woman whose spouse is not living up to these commandments, right? In the ancient Near East codes, in the ancient Greco-Roman codes, it was said the man should get submission from his wife and his children. And then it said basically, and you can do whatever you need to to get them to submit, right? Um, another very major world religion has in their holy book a list of things a man can do to his wife, including physical violence, to make sure that she properly submits to him. The Bible has no such thing in it. The only recourse a man or a woman has in this is to the other Christian disciples. They can appeal to the elders of their church who can't hit, hit the woman or the man either. All they can do is, as a shepherd, spiritually encourage them and call them and charge them to do the right thing, and then they do it or they don't. There is no recourse. You must accept what is commanded of you, and they must accept what is commanded of them under the rule of Christ, and that's it. What that means is, is that if a man says, well, I, I can get her to do it, or listen, women just use different means, okay? There's all kinds of things. We, we nag, and we withhold sex, and we spend money like idiots, and we, like— we just do stuff to annoy each other. We withhold our emotions. We, we yell in arguments. We say cutting things. I mean, women and men have all kinds of bags of tricks about how to make the other person's life miserable. Let's not pretend that's not true, okay? Those aren't available to you. You're supposed to win over the other person with beauty. In, in 1 Peter 3, it talks about how a woman does that. In Ephesians 5, it talks about how with love men are supposed to do that. You only have the positive action of godliness to utilize to win over your spouse to yourself. Because when you use those negative means, you're pushing away the one you're supposed to be one with. It destroys all three mysteries, right? All right, seven. Is loving your wife—okay, so this is like—go back. So there—so you're like, okay, Nick, are there any exceptions? Like, is my husband allowed to abuse me? Or like, wh like what are you saying? Okay, so there are some limitations. The first, for the—let's do the men first. 
Loving your wife doesn't mean appeasing her or accepting her unreasonable expectations, okay? If your wife thinks loving her is like, I don't know, that you, she should have a car with like 400 horsepower and leather seats and like she should go on these sorts of vacations and they should blah, 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 and there should be this many rooms in our house and I want blah, 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 right? That's called being a twit, okay? Like that's, that's not, that has nothing to do with what husbands are being called to do here. Husbands are called to love their wives unto the end of their spotless beauty before Christ in their spiritual and moral character to be all they can be as human beings as women. That's what the man is called to, okay? Now, in, in that, he should seek to provide that she be free from want in things like having food and clothing and stuff. But that's it. And so there are ways in which sometimes women will say, if you loved me, you would do such and such and so and so, either in their words or their actions. And they are profoundly misusing the command God has given their husband. And it is a very terrible sin and should be repented of as soon as possible, okay? Now, for, for women, there is no situation in which your husband would do something in which you, you don't need to submit. The difference is that if that your husband does something that is sufficiently outside of his authority, such that to obey him would be to disobey Christ, right? Your immediate supervisor changes. Do you understand? Because who, who gave your husband authority, right? Who does he stand in for? Christ. He, has, he doesn't have a higher authority than Christ. He's under Christ, right? And so any situation in which the husband says, I want this, and it is a betrayal of the Christ who gave him that authority— you have—you appeal to his greater boss or the authority that is above him, which is Christ himself. That is in an outright thing. If he tells you to outright sin, right? You can say, I, listen, sweetheart, you're asking me to obey either Jesus or you. Your job is to—your job is to lead me so that I'm obeying both Jesus and you. Do not ask me to make this kind of decision because you know where my loyalties lie, right? And— to a certain extent, and it's, I, I, I hesitate to say this because um, this is very, it's a very easy truth to abuse. Because we use the word abuse for everything now. You know what I mean? But the husband's authority is for the flourishing of his wife and his household. That's what it's for. So, so arguably, when a husband acts in a way that is for himself and not for the flourishing of his wife and his wife's household, he is always misusing his authority. Okay. You got to be careful with that because you could say on that basis, anytime your husband does anything you don't entirely adore, that you can just like give him the what for, right? So like you have to be very careful morally and spiritually how you use that. But it is true that the authority given to the husband is for the—to create the flourishing of his wife. The use of a man's authority, the woman should feel if her emotions are properly calibrated, is an act of love towards her and through her back to himself. And when that is clearly not the case, there's a problem with the man's use of his authority. And a woman should at least consider what submission or what her role looks like in that kind of situation, which at point should she alert her husband to this fact? Should she submit this time and be very careful about next time? Should she not obey? Like that's, that's an area because women, women don't obey because they're dumb, right? That's not the—it's not they're unequal. It's an issue of roles. And so listen, guys, you're— I mean, you're leading some smart cookies, and you better, you better be on, better be on point. You know what I'm saying? And one of the things I hear from men a lot is, I can't possibly do this. 
right? Because women come to church more. It's just like a fact. Women come to church more. Women have more leisure time. Men tend to work more hours, so women tend to go to more women's Bible studies. And so women go to church more. They kind of act more religious, and they tend to know more about Bible stuff because they tend to go to more Jesus things, right? And so men tend to feel a little bit emasculated, in, particularly in the exact realms they're supposed to lead. It doesn't, this doesn't say anything about leading economically. It talks about leading morally and spiritually, is what it means. And so men are like, well, I can't really do that because she's so far ahead of me. Listen, do not—don't—don't don't submit to that road, right? Like, you, you look at spiritual life and life differently than her. You're a man and a woman. So you don't have to have a lot of insights. You don't have to grow that much to have helpful and meaningful insights to her. Plus, women want men to lead. Listen, for every one woman I have in my counseling office in marriages who are like, my husband is just—he's a battering ram. Like, he's always being, like, hard. I have five wives, at least, who are like, man, I wish, just wish the guy would lead and just do something. The frustration most wives have is they wish their husbands would do more and lead more. Because what happens when husbands don't lead? You're like, well, women get to lead. Well, yeah, women get to lead, but what you're doing is you're abdicating your responsibility and dumping all that additional authority onto your wife. They don't like that over the long haul. They hate it. They resent it. And a lot of guys just don't take it up. And you'd be surprised, guys, how if you got a mentor, if you listened attentively to sermons, if you went to small group, if you read your Bible a little, if you did a few things and you tried to grow in your faith— how quickly you would have something at least to contribute in that relationship. And your wives know, and the women in your life know, it's some of the reasons why some of you guys aren't dating right now, is women know that if they have children, their sons at least, but also their daughters, probably will not adopt their faith if their husbands don't lead spiritually. They know their, their boys will grow up and think religion is a woman's thing, and not for men. They know that. And women either implicitly or are longing for or often desire men to in an honest and kind and non-harsh way with understanding of them and in a way that gives them deep honor to lead in a way that is beautifully masculine so that they have something to respond to. And for most of us to, to move forward in this, no matter what stage of life we're in or where you might be in your marriage, usually what needs to happen is a whole lot of repenting before you can kind of get back on course again. And that takes a lot of courage. A lot of courage. But it's the only way to walk into these mysteries. To be one with Christ. To be one with one another. And to mirror that in relationship to itself. Let's pray. Father, there's so much I didn't say, a bunch of things I did say, and this is a very difficult issue for us. And so I pray that you'd take the things I've said. I pray that um, you would apply it meaningfully to the hearts of folks that are single, who are not in a marriage relationship right now. And I pray that you would do it in such a way that they would see the many, many applications of this in their relationship to you as their living head, and in the body of Christ in every relationship of submission and authority that they're part of. I pray that those of us who are married um, would use this vocation to as beautifully as possible live out the oneness that you've called us to and to mirror the oneness that you've created as being the living head of your church. And as we turn ourselves now to the, sac the sacrament or the ordinance of communion, I pray, Lord, that you would help us to go back to the real 
nature of any oneness we can have with anybody in any way. Being one church, being one with you, being one with our spouses, which is your death and resurrection, your sacrifice, that your body was broken so that we could be a body. Help us in these moments to reflect and repent and be restored in you in Jesus' name. Amen.